I want to continue on in a long tradition here at Southland of preaching very fluffy message topics uh, during summer. And uh, so we're going to talk about the law this month, all right? And uh, we're going to get real shallow and trite and easy, and we're going to talk about the law, right? Now, for those of you who don't know what the law is, uh, and maybe some of you are new believers or, or uh, you don't know much about scriptures, the law, technically, it refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books that Moses wrote. And those five books are called, uh, they're sometimes called the Pentateuch. They're also called the law, okay? And, uh, and of course, they contain all of the laws and commandments and rules that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. But just so you know, they contain much more than that. Obviously, any of you who's ever read Genesis, Exodus, and, and those books will know it's not just rules and commandments and laws. It's also lots of stories. And of course, the creation stories at the beginning of Genesis and many other very important stories. And of course, the law also contains the promises of salvation and the promise of Messiah that God made to, to Abraham. All of that is in the law, but those five books are called the law. And I'm, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been studying the law as far as I've been writing a paper on it and doing some work on it now since fall. I thought it would just be a quick 20-page paper, and it's turned into 125 pages now, 100 of which is online, and, and you can look at that. I'll talk about that later in the message. Um, but uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot to talk about this topic, and the reason I'm passionate about it is there's a lot of confusion in the church today about those first five books. There's a lot of confusion about the law, and a lot of people are saying today, a lot of preachers are preaching, a lot of people are saying it's almost like common knowledge. A lot of Christians just think it, even if they don't know why. They think that the Old Testament law has been canceled in our lives. And so I want to talk about that. And so the fact that that is out there, it sows doubt. People can't read their Bibles with confidence. And we're always encouraging you here at Southland to read your Bible. And every summer, we give out these summer reading plans. And we want you guys reading through your Bibles and reading the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I know that even as we do that, a lot of you don't know what to do with the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament, and especially the law. And so I want you to have confidence, because as you're reading it, a lot of people are going, well, does this apply, does this not, or this whole thing, I don't really know if it applies at all. And so in this series, I want you to come out of this series having uh, confidence that everything in here is supposed to be there and that you know what it's for, all right? And uh, I'm going to deal throughout this series with a whole bunch of different things. Um, we're going to deal with how do you know which laws are for today and which ones are not. And so we'll talk about things like, is it a sin to have a tattoo? Wouldn't you like to know? I'm not going to say it today. <laughs> you have to just keep coming back. If you have a tattoo, you better not go to the cottage this month, right? So uh, <laughs> is, it, uh, is it bad to work on the Sabbath? We're going to look at all those questions. Those are big questions, right? And there's divisions in the body of Christ. And uh, later in this series, I also want to get to, uh, we're going to talk about why there's so much violence in the Old Testament, and specifically, there's quite a bit there between Genesis and Deuteronomy, and so we're going to look at some of that because people have doubts in their minds as they're reading this. How can a, how can a good, loving God, uh, how can this be in the Bible and some of the stuff that happens there, and we're going to deal with some of that as well. So I want you to come out of this with a lot of confidence. I want you to know what to do with the law, and I want you to know which laws apply and all those sorts of things, right? And so the big topic, this is a really, really big topic. I've got four weeks to do it. We're not, we're, I mean, we're really basically only going to scratch the surface in a number of areas. Um, but today is just the introduction, so I obviously can't get to all of that today. Here's, I've got three modest goals today. That's what I want to happen this morning. And the first one is, my first number one priority today in this message is, by the end of this message, I want you to know and believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. 
I want to dispel every one of your theological doubts about the law. And at the end of this message, I want you to know in your heart that the law is good. I want you to know that it is good to teach. It is good to read. It is good to meditate on. It is good to obey. And I want you to know that. That's, that's what this message is about. A lot of preachers today are saying it's death, it's condemnation, it's, it's canceled, it's all sorts of things. And in this message, if you get nothing else, I want you to know that the law is good. My second goal today is we're going to dabble a little bit in Paul. And uh, of all the writers in the New Testament, you read any of the writers, you read Jesus' sayings, you read the gospel writers, you read James, you read John, you read Peter. Every single one of them, whenever they talk about the law, it is 100% positive and good. But then there's Paul. And Peter himself said, Paul talks about things that are sometimes hard to understand. Yes? And some of you have read Romans and Galatians. You say, sometimes it's hard to understand. And there's certain times in Paul's writings and Paul's writings alone where he seems to say two opposite things. He'll, say, he'll seem to say that the law is good, and then in the next breath he'll seem to say that the law is bad and death. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to dabble in that today. And I want you to be able to this summer as well, not just read your Old Testament with confidence, I want you to be able to read Paul with confidence and know that there are no contradictions in Scripture. And then my third thing is, right at the very end of this message, I'm going to show you that the law is intensely practical and relevant to your life today. It's wonderful, all right? Now, like I said, for some of you, this message today is not going to go deep enough. This message is going to open up questions about other passages that I don't have time to talk about. And so, uh, I, like I said, I've got a paper, and I'm, I'm still writing it, but the first three parts stand on their own. I'm working on a fourth part right now. It's 100 pages long. It's online on the front page of our website. Mark it down if you're at all interested, and I want you to go and read it. It de- basically deals with almost every passage in the New Testament that talks about the law. And it's not quite finished. I'm still adding some things, but there's lots there for you to chew on. Normally, I, I print off papers like that and just give them to you when you come here, but it's 100 pages. I didn't want to bankrupt the church and wipe out you know, another 25% of the Amazon rainforest. And so you can print it off on your own, or you can just read it on your computer, but it's yours to have for free. I encourage you throughout this series, go and look at that. Here in these messages, that, that paper takes it way deeper as far as many, many passages of Scripture. And this me- on, in these messages, I only have time to kind of skim across the top, all right? So bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and then we're going to get into this, this message. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I love your law. I love it. And I want to obey it in the same way that I love it. Pray that you would help me in that. Pray for us as a church, Lord Jesus. My desire is that this month, this church, Southland, is going to fall in love with your laws. They are good, they are food for our souls. It is wonderful when we live our lives in conformity with your good character. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come down on us today and this month and that you would just tear off the scales from our eyes and the false teachings and the false theologies, Father, that we can love your word, that we can obey your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The law is good. That's my first job today. The law is good. Like I said, there's a group of preachers uh, that today that is preaching that the law is death and condemnation. I literally heard a preacher recently, very popular uh, preacher, say that preaching the Ten Commandments is death. And so if he was here today, he would be keeling over very shortly, okay? Because that's what I'm preaching. I'm preaching the law. The law is death. The law is condemnation. The law is a burden. And I get, and you know what? And I, I want to say something right up front. Of course, obviously I get that we don't follow all the laws in the law anymore. Like I said, we're going to get to that in this series. I'm going to show you which ones apply and which ones don't. It's actually not that hard. 
But I get that there's things in here we don't do anymore. I get, thank God, that we don't have to sacrifice animals every time after we sin. Amen? Jesus paid that price, and I'm not good with blood, okay? So it's just, I'm glad I don't live in that era, all right? You know, some of you are saying, thank God we don't stone adulterers anymore because you wouldn't be here. Isn't that true? And I'm glad that we get to eat bacon now in the new covenant. (laughs) I mean, I've been meditating on that a lot this last week. Um, There is no food except for dessert that I've been able to figure out that isn't better with bacon. Isn't that true? I mean, hamburgers with bacon, it's better. Pizza, better. With bacon, salad, better. Everything's better with bacon. And in the Old Testament law, you wouldn't have been eating bacon, all right? So yes, I get that some of these laws, we don't do them anymore, and they wouldn't be that great if we still had to do them, yes. But when I hear these preachers saying, it's death, it's condemnation, it's a burden to obey the law, and to think about the law, and to teach the law, and then I think, what about do not murder? Oh, what a burden. Like, do you guys just feel the heavy yoke of condemnation? <laughs> what about do not commit adultery? Oh, Lord, this burden you've given us. Do not lie, do not steal. Oh, Lord, life's no fun anymore. Is it really condemnation and death, really? The scripture doesn't say so. King David, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, said this in Psalm 19, 7, verses 7 to 11. And by the way, King David had hundreds of good things to say about the law. Man after God's own heart. The entire chapter, Psalm 119, almost the whole thing is about the law and God's rules and statutes and word and all that stuff and how wonderful it is to meditate on and obey it. And you can read that this week, and, but it's very long. I'm just going to read you Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. And David says this, The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. And quite unlike what modern day preachers are saying that it's condemnation and death, look what he says, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is is perfect and it's reviving the soul. It's good for your soul. It's good food. Reviving the soul. And then he, he goes on, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now look at this. So we've got the commands and the precepts and the law and the rules. He's talking about all these statutes of the law. And all he had at that time was Genesis through Deuteronomy. And this is what he says about the law. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Totally different. If David would have heard much of the preaching that's going on in the modern day church, he would have wept. Because he just loved the law. He said, Oh, to meditate on the laws. To think about God's goodness. The laws show us God's character. The laws show us right and wrong, light and dark. He said, I love to meditate on it. It's honey to my soul. And there's great reward in keeping them. It's wonderful. But so many today, there's so many confused teachings today, and people are saying, well, the law is bad because it makes you feel guilty. And there's this, there's this idea in the Western church today that feeling guilty is your enemy. Let me tell you something. Feeling guilty isn't your enemy. Sin is your enemy. There's this idea that anything that makes you feel guilty, that's condemnation and that's bad. The Bible does not say that condemnation is your enemy. The Bible says sin is your enemy. 
And so when people say we've got to get rid of the law because the law makes us feel guilty, I go, of course the law makes you feel guilty if you sin. I mean, let me, let's just think about this. Let's just step back and have a little common sense. If you murder someone, you should feel guilty. Yes or no? I mean, if you commit adultery, I hope you feel guilty. I hope you can't sleep at night until you bring that sin out and confess it and, and tell your spouse and get some preachers around you to help you get back on the right track and stop sinning. Now, if you keep feeling guilty after that, that's false guilt. That's false condemnation. And you need to get over that. You need to get some help and get out of that. But yes, the law makes you feel guilty. You should feel guilty when you do wrong. That doesn't make the law bad. That makes you and I bad. See, the law is not our enemy. Condemnation is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. That's why Romans 6.23 says this. For the wages of what? The wages of sin. It's not the law. It's not the law that causes death. It's the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? You know, I've got, I've got three kids, and I often talk about them. One of the reasons I had kids was so that I'd have something to talk about up here. <laughs> Good enough reason, right? Just have kids. So anyway, um, my second oldest is Charlie, and I'm going to keep talking about them the whole time they grow up um, because I'm the boss of the house and they can't do anything about it, right? So Charlie's two years old, Okay. Joy is five years old. She's a little more trustworthy. I don't worry about her on the street. You know, she needs to go across the street to get a toy or a friend or whatever. You know, she can go across the street. She can look both ways. I'm not worried about her, okay? But little Charlie, uh, not allowed to go on the street, okay? So I just have a rule. You don't go on the street, okay? Because I don't trust a little two-year-old boy on the street, right? Now, in the spirit of our modern-day age today, People think about God's law and God's rules and they say, well, God, God got rid of those rules after the cross because of grace and because those rules make us feel guilty. To which I say, is Charlie's enemy my rule not to go on the street or is it the cars that could kill him? The rule is not his enemy. The rule is the boundary that says on this side of the boundary is safe, on this side of the boundary is unsafe. The rule keeps him safe from what will kill him, which is the cars. And it's the same with rules like do not commit adultery. That rule is not condemnation on me. That rule is a boundary that says on this side is goodness, purity, righteousness. God is happy and you are blessed. And on this side is danger, sin, hell, bad, dark for your relationships and God is mad. So don't go there. It's the adultery that's your enemy. The rule is telling you where the unsafety starts. The rule is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. And the law is not bad. And this is, in fact, what Paul said in Romans 7, verses 11 to 13. He said this, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, speaking of the law, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is what? Holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and what? Right. Let's try it on this side too. Let's all do it together, okay? And the commandment is what? Good. So Paul just said exactly what I said. The law is good. Now, there was a question among some people because they thought he was teaching that what was good was killing people, which is what some preachers are teaching today. They're saying, okay, fine, I'll grant you that the law is good, but it's killing people. And Paul answers that question in the very next statement. Look what he says. Now, did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law kill me? What does he say? By no means. What kills you? It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul says, the law is good. The law does not kill us. Sin kills us. 
okay? The law is good. And one of the law's primary jobs, which I'm so thankful for, and one of the reasons it's good, is because it shows us what good looks like. Imagine if God had never given us the law. How would you know right or wrong? How would you know bad or good? How would you teach your kids? How would we run society? In fact, you look throughout history, you look at some of the communist societies and different societies that haven't known Jesus, and you look at the societies that try to get rid of God's law, and what you find is a societal breakdown under immorality. They're horrible places to live. The law is wonderful. The law shows us what good looks like. It shows us what God's character is like. It shows us how to live life properly. The law is very, very good. Now, before I move on to that, I said I wanted to dabble in Paul just a little bit because right away, as soon as I show you a passage like this, some of you uh, are thinking of some other passages that you've maybe heard where Paul seems to say the opposite. Like I said, I can't go into this deep enough here in this message. That paper's online. It deals with a whole bunch of these passages. You can look through it. But here we clearly have Paul saying the law is good. The law does not kill. It's sin that kills. But some of you might be thinking of another passage and say, well, what do we do about that? Let me go to one of those other passages that people often use. And this is a passage I particularly heard uh, recently of another preacher who used this passage then to say it is death. The Ten Commandments are death. So let's go to it, okay? And let's see if there is a contradiction here in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3. 7 to 9 says this. Now, if the ministry of death, the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Now, what was carved in stone? The Ten Commandments, right? So he's definitely talking about the law here. He's talking about the Ten Commandments do not murder, do not lie, do not have any other gods before you. It's the letters carved in stone, no question. So here he's talking about, he says, so first we looked in Romans and he said, uh, the law is good and sin kills, not the law. And then now here we have him calling the law the ministry of death. So that could be a little confusing, right? What's Paul saying here? Right, well, let's keep going. Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. So now he calls it not only the ministry of death, but it's also the ministry of condemnation. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, let's talk about this first thing is I think we can all agree here, or most of us anyway, there cannot be contradictions in Scripture. Yes? Okay? So, because there's only, there's only, there's many writers of the Bible, many writers in Scripture, but there's only one author. One author, the Holy Spirit. So if it's in here, there can't be contradictions. So the question is, how can the law be good and not cause death, and on the, but in some sense also be a ministry of death. So it doesn't cause death, but it can be a ministry of death. Let me, ex- let, let me explain. Let's just look now again at what is the law's job. We looked at one of the law's jobs is the law shows us what good looks like. It shows us right and wrong. It shows us, or right, it, it shows us God's character. It, it shows us good. But here's something that comes along with that. Okay? The moment the law tells me what is good immediately I know something else. I also know the flip side. I know what is bad. Is that true? I mean, the moment that the law tells me telling the truth is good, I just automatically know immediately the flip side, telling a lie is bad. That's true, right? So, I mean, the law's primary job, show me what good is, but with that job, automatically comes another job. By telling me what good is, the law also tells me what bad is. So then there is a ministry. The law has a ministry, not just to show me God's character, not just to show me what to do. It also shows me my sins. Because until I see the law, I don't know that there's anything bad. 
Until the law tells me that sexual immorality is wrong and wicked, I don't know it's wrong and wicked. I think, I'm a pretty decent person. And then I come along to the law, and the law says, wickedness. And so in that sense, there is a sense in which one of the law's jobs is to bring me bad news. Yes? So when, and that is what Paul's talking about here, the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. One of the law's jobs, because it tells us what is good, it automatically then tells us what is bad. One of its jobs is to bring us bad news about spiritual death and separation from God and how wicked we are. Does that make the law bad, by the way? Let me, let me uh, use an illustration I think you'll understand. Cancer. Many, some of you here today might be struggling with cancer right now. I just prayed for a man this morning. Um, just a dear brother who's been in our church for many years and, and served here, and I was praying for him. He's, he's struggling with cancer now. And, uh, and well, I mean, pretty much everyone here, I'm sure you've known someone or been related to someone who's, who's struggled with cancer. And, and one of the things I know about cancer is often it's, it's, people can have cancer for months or sometimes even years. I've known people, I, I knew one guy who got a big operation a couple years ago. He'd had a cancerous thing in his back, and he'd had it pretty much all his life. Didn't know it. Then had to have this massive operation and and radiation treatments and stuff after that. So the thing is, often you can have cancer and it's quiet, you don't know it. And as long as you don't know it, life is relatively easy. I mean, you just, you go to work, just like everybody else, and you go to family and you enjoy life, and everything's good, and then maybe you get a couple of minor symptoms of something, you don't know what it is, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor does some tests, and he comes back and tells you, it's, you, you have cancer. And the moment he tells you you have cancer, there was your life before cancer, and then people will tell you there's kind of life after cancer, and everything in your life changes when you get that news. Now, you already had the cancer before, yes? But you didn't know you had the cancer, so your life was easy. You weren't going into the hospital for radiation treatments for nothing, right? And then you got cancer, and suddenly your life got very hard because... You had, to, you had to go and get chemo or radiation or, or whatever. You were getting different treatments and life became hard and life became painful and there was all these drugs you were taking. You were at the hospital. You got very weak and life got very hard. And so the, my question to you is, is the doctor who diagnosed you with cancer and gave you that bad news, is he bad? No. You want the truth, don't you? You want to know so that you can fight it. But let me ask you something. Did life get harder for you after the bad news? Sure it did. Sure it did. But that doesn't mean the bearer of bad news is bad. He's good. You want him to tell you so that you can fight this thing. And people today are saying the law. That is exactly the same thing the law does. The law comes along and you've got people, this is just rampant in our society right now. Many people, they say, I think I'm good. I'm a decent person. I'm a nice person. If there was a heaven, if there is such a thing as heaven, I'm going because I'm nice. And the law comes around and says, shines the light on you and gives you the bad news. Oh, wicked. I am full of sin. Gross. So in that sense, it's a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation, but that doesn't mean the law is bad and we need to cancel it. Maybe we should just fire all of our doctors when they give us bad news, right? No. The fact that they bring a ministry of death to us sometimes too, and they bring us bad news of death and sickness, doesn't mean that we don't need them. We need them more. It's just that part of their job isn't always pleasant, right? It's not always pleasant. See, the law opens our eyes to sin. See, and this will start to make sense. Once you understand the, the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of death, Paul is not saying, preachers are preaching that passage, I hear them, and they're using that passage to say, see, Paul didn't like the law. He most certainly loved the law. I just showed you the other passage. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. 
And it's sin that kills you. And if you look at my paper online, you're going to find lots of else. Paul said lots and lots of good things. He said, I delight in the law. That's what he said in Romans 7 as well. But let's go to Romans 7, 9. And here's another passage that people kind of twist and they misunderstand because they've got this preconceived idea. They've got this notion that the law is bad. And then they read passages like this and they say, see, it's bad. And Paul says in this passage, I was once alive apart from the law. And they say, see? And then the commandment came and sin came alive and I died. And people look at this verse and they say, see, the law makes you more sinful. The law brings death. The law brings sin. And let me just say right now, that is not at all what this passage is saying. Okay? I was once alive apart from the law. Let's, let's just break this down a little bit. What is Paul saying here? Is he saying here that he was once, that before he knew anything about the law, he was alive spiritually? Do you think that's what he's saying? We all know 100% that that is not what he's saying. I'll tell you how we know. We would never send out another missionary ever if we actually believe that. Because if that's what he's saying, then what he's saying is people who don't know God's laws are already saved. So don't tell them. If they don't know, if they're just, if they're just living apart from God's laws and they don't know about God, if what he's saying here is that I was once alive spiritually before I knew the law, then what he's saying is we shouldn't tell people about God who don't know about them because they're already alive. That's most certainly not what he's saying. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, their city came, there was, that was the story there with Abraham and Lot, that happens about uh, 440 to 450 years before Moses gets the law at Mount Sinai. So now let me ask you, Sodom was in the place there of being apart from the law, yes? The law had not been written yet. They had never encountered God's law, nothing like that, Okay. And what did God do? He was angry with them for their wickedness, wasn't he? And what did he do? He judged them with fire. And you could go look at, you know, communist countries. I mean, communism is kind of on the decline now, but back in the heydays of communism in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if, if, what, communism is an atheistic worldview. And what they did is they would, they, they would not allow people to believe in God, and they got rid of all of God's laws. Now, do you think they were alive spiritually apart from the law? When they got rid of God's law, did they come alive spiritually? Now, if you would have gone into some of those countries, I've been reading some history over the past year. I've read a number of books about what life was like under Stalin and in, under the communist uh, regimes, and it was horrid. The immorality, the corruption, the violence, the abuse, those were horrible places. When they took out God's law, things got way worse. So Paul is not here saying that before he encountered the law, he was alive spiritually to God. That's not what he's saying. And we know that's not what he's saying. And a couple verses later, he proves it when he say, it says, it's a couple verses later, which is the passage we read before, about where he said, sin kills, not the law. The law is good. So what does he mean when he says, I was once alive apart from the law? Let me tell you this. When someone doesn't know about the law and they sin, is that sin killing them? Yeah, sure it is. Sure it is. It's still hurting them. Sexual promiscuity and lying and murder, those, you know, societies fall apart. Even if they don't know about God's law, it's still killing them. But here's the thing, it kills them quietly, doesn't it? Because they don't feel guilty. See, Paul says, before I met the law, like I said before, I thought I was a pretty good person. I could lust. I could do all these various things. I could lie. I could take advantage of people. I could do all that, but there was no right or wrong in my mind. So I wasn't bothered by it. I didn't go to bed at night and feel guilty about my sins because I didn't believe there was such a thing as sin. I was once alive apart from the law. I mean, my sin was killing me, but I didn't know it was. It was quiet. I didn't feel guilty. I felt like I was a pretty decent person. 
But then the commandment came and sin came alive when I died. I was walking along thinking I was pretty decent and this spotlight came on my life and I thought, there is such a thing as sin and it's horrible and it's stained my entire life and I'm wicked. That's what he's talking about. You say, well, what, what does it mean sin came alive? Is, is he saying that he wasn't sinning before he knew about the law or the law makes you sin more? No. Again, if we believed that what he's saying there, what some people are teaching, sin came alive, that the law makes you sin more, none of us here actually believes that. I guarantee it. Because if you believe that and you were a parent, you would never teach your kids any rules. You wouldn't. Because if knowing the law makes you sin more, you would never tell your kids, be kind, don't steal, don't lie. Because you would think that teaching them the law would make them sin more. Paul is not saying here that knowing the law makes you sin more. So what does it mean? Sin came alive. Let's think about this. I said before already, I was once alive apart from the law. I could once sin. Before I knew that was right and wrong, I could sin and not feel guilty about it. And then the commandment came, and now every time I sin, it hammers away. There's alarm bells. Something else happens too. Before I know the law, have you ever thought about this? Before a person knows the law, there's no inner struggle with sin. There's no struggle with temptation. If you don't believe lust is bad, you don't fight against lust. You just give in. Isn't that true? I mean, I read, I read an interview. This was a few years ago. And uh, I actually read an article about the interview. I didn't read the interview itself, but there was lots of articles. A uh, famous uh, quarterback uh, in, in football. And uh, all-star, gave a big interview. In the interview, he somehow casually gets onto the topic of pornography. I'm reading this. I'm reading the articles about the interview. I'm going, how did it get to this, first of all? And then second of all, this guy just casually talks about pornography. Here's a guy making millions of dollars. He says, I'm just like any regular guy and I look at pornography all the time. And I'm like, have you no shame? Like your mom's going to be reading this. Your dad's going to be reading this. Your siblings are going to be reading this. Your girlfriend's going to be reading this. Your fans are all going to be reading this. And here's this guy's talking casually about pornography. And then, and then it hit me. If you don't think something's wrong, you're not embarrassed about it. There's no, there's no struggle for this person. When he gets a lustful desire and he's on the computer, he just gives in. There's no, but now compare him with this new believer who had, doesn't have victory over his lust yet. And this new believer, suddenly he, he gets, comes into contact with God's law. He can't just give in anymore because now he's got two competing impulses inside of him. He's got one impulse that says, do this. And now, and he used to just give in and it was no problem. There was no fight. He didn't have to give up any energy disciplining that impulse. Now he's got this other impulse that says, no, no, I've got to do right. And so now he's got a fight inside of himself that he never had before. And so things actually sometimes get harder after you become a Christian. Isn't that true? Sometimes things become harder. So Paul says, the commandment came, and then sin came alive, and I died. It's not that sin wasn't at work in his life before. It's that he never fought it before. He never had a wrestling match. He didn't have locks on his computer. He didn't have people phoning him up, you know, accountability partners. Don't do it. He wasn't in a cold sweat. You know, don't do it, don't do it. Help me, help me, Jesus. Like this. No fight. But the moment he found out about the law, the law exposed this hideous thing called sin, and now a wrestling match came alive in him that he never had before. Sin came alive and I died. You know, if you've got, if you've, you know, if you live in some of these cities, some of these cities around the world, I've read articles about some of the rat problems that you got in some of these big cities around the world. And imagine you're living in, in, in you know, an old house in one of these, in one of these cities, and, and you could have rats, tons of rats under your floorboards. And as long as you don't confront them, as long as you don't know they're there, they stay hidden. They don't, they don't come out, you know, and take your cutlery while you're at breakfast and say, see you and go down. They stay hidden. 
So you, so you don't have a fight with the rats. Your life is easy. They're there, but you don't know they're there, and you just live. Now, here's the thing. They're still harming you. They're eating stuff, you know, in the walls and stuff that they shouldn't be eating. They're bringing pests and fleas and disease into your house. You don't want them there, but as long as you don't know they're there, there's no fight or struggle, is there? And then one day, someone comes into your house and says, I think you got rats, and they rip up the floorboards, and there's a nest, and now these things are hissing at you and trying to bite you. That's what Paul's talking about here. You've got sin under the floorboards. It's bringing disease into your life. You don't know, but you're just going with your life. It's no problem. And one day the law comes to your house and rips up the floorboard and you go, whoa, and you've got a fight on your hands. Sin came alive and I died. And of course, we don't want to end at death. Do you see, though, how Paul is not contradicting himself here, by the way? You can look at my paper online again. It deals with many of these passages. Paul is actually quite consistent. And I'll show you more yet today. He's got many, many passages. He's very consistent in showing that the law is good. But it does awaken a struggle. Now, of course, you know, actually, before I go to the next point, I just want to do one other thing. Who would you rather be? Because some of you might be saying, here, you're not really selling the law to me here today. <laughs> my life's going to get harder. If I study the law, I'm gonna get, it's going to get harder. And it's true. And, you know, if we, if we look at it like a continuum, on this side of the continuum here is someone who doesn't believe in God's law at all. In some senses, their life is easier. No question. Because there's no inner struggle. Now, in other senses, their life is worse because they have to deal with the consequences of their sin and the emptiness of not following God. And someday they'll have eternal judgment too. But in the sense of the struggle with sin, their life is much easier. Then on this side of the continuum, you've got, you know, the victorious Christian. Someone who's walking with Jesus. They're surrendered to the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is in them. They're not perfect yet, not until Jesus comes back. But they don't have huge struggles. I mean, you can talk to victorious Christians and they're not, you know, sweating white knuckles trying not to sin every day. Okay? So there, there's that. That's pretty easy. But it's, you know, it's in the middle here when you're on the way to victory where being a Christian can be a lot harder in some senses than being this person over here. But now let me ask you this question. Who would you rather be? Matthew 7, 13 to 14 says this. Jesus says this. Who would you rather be? Would you rather have it easy or would you rather have eternal life? Jesus says this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is what? Let's say it a little louder. For the gate is wide and the way is what? That leads to what? Yeah. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. That leads to what? And those who find it are few. Who would you rather be? Yeah, following God's law and being a God follower will sometimes mean struggle. Sometimes it'll mean for various reasons and different things, different people and the things that you come from and all that place. Sometimes the struggle is months and years rather than weeks or days. But don't give up because the, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life sometimes. So anyway, Paul said in Romans 7, 9, I was once alive apart from the law. I didn't feel guilty about my sin. I thought I was a pretty decent person. And then the commandment came alive, came, and suddenly sin came alive. Suddenly I had this struggle with sin that I never had before, and I died. Now the fact that he ends on death there means that we need more than just the law. We don't want to end at death, Right? And so I want to put a point in here in this first message of the series. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. And you've got to have this. And I want you to remember this throughout this series now. I am not saying that the law is all you need. The law is not enough. The law diagnoses my sin problem, but it can't solve my sin problem. The law is good. It shows me what good looks like. It shows me what God's character is like. But it can't bring me into that character. It can just show me. It can show me my sin, but it can't get rid of my sin. Two other things are still needed. Hear me loud and clear. The law by itself is not enough. We need two other things. We need the blood of Jesus to wash away and forgive all of my law breaking, yes? 
I need to have faith in Jesus because of my hundreds of times breaking the law. He needs to forgive me of that. And then I need a third thing. I need the Holy Spirit to give me power to live out the law. That's the good life. A lot of preachers now, though, are preaching in the New Testament, we only need two things, the blood and the Spirit. And we don't need the law anymore because the blood and the Spirit cancel out the law. That's not the good life. The good life is not having the Holy Spirit and having manifestations of the Holy Spirit, but still living disobedient to the law, being filled with lies and sexual immorality. Does that sound good to you? The good life is, I believe in Jesus Christ. He forgives all my past sins. I get filled with the Holy Spirit so that I can walk out the law. I can tell the truth. I can be a godly and righteous person. I can be pure in my thoughts and in my actions and in my words. That's the good life. All three, the blood, the Spirit, and the law, all together, needing them all. You know, a lot of people, a lot of Christians nowadays, a lot of probably of, of some, or at least some of you here today. A lot of people think, and this is still Christians, and, and nobody would even, and no Christian would say that this is the good life, but many of us believe it, and you can see it by your actions. Many Christians today still think that the good life is, I'm going to have a big house, and it's going to be paid off, and I'm going to have more time, I'm going to have like some, some extra money, I won't have all that debt, and I'm going to be able to just enjoy my life. Maybe I'll get a cottage, and I'm going to go places, maybe I'll be able to retire or semi-retire, but I'm going to have my house paid off, and I'm going to enjoy the pleasures of life. That's what many of us think, that's the good life. The good life is, is you know, getting a house, getting a little bit of security, and then enjoying the pleasures of life. And whether you admit to that or not, you can see if that's what you think the good life is by what you're pursuing. But let me tell you what the real good life is. Let me tell you what actual good life looks like. Here's the good life. The good life is going to bed at night when your head hits the pillow, it hits the pillow with a clean conscience. Because you don't have to take back a single word you said that day because everything you said was the truth. The good life is going to bed at night and knowing that you don't have to take back, you don't have to be ashamed of anything you did in any of your private alone moments that day. The good life is going to bed at night with a clean conscience knowing that you loved people and served people and honored God in all of your actions at home and the business, at wherever, in play and everything. You honored Him and you go to bed at night and you've got fellowship with the Holy Spirit and you obeyed Him that day. That is the good life. And if you're not convinced about that, let me show it to you in Scripture. 1 Peter 3 verse 10 and 12 tells you what the good life is. By the way, Peter is quoting the Old Testament here. I could have taken this straight out of Psalms, but I'm going to take Peter's quote of the New Testament because some of you aren't quite convinced yet that the Old Testament is good. Later in this series, I'm just going to confidently and boldly use the Old Testament. I'll still just kind of with one hand behind my back use the New Testament right now, okay? Here's what Peter says, quoting David. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Put your hand up if you would, if you would like to love life and see good days. I can't believe some of you didn't raise your hands on that one. That's, you don't want to see good life. Okay, fine. Um, I, I ran across this passage in my devotions a few months ago, and I've got it written there. I got it underlined, whoever desires to love life and see good days, and then I got, it says, me, exclamation points underlined. <laughs> I want to love life and see good days. That is me, me, me. Yes, God. He's got some very practical advice for you now. And you know what some preachers today are saying? The secret to the good life is cancel out the law so you don't feel guilty anymore. You can just live worldly 
and lazy and apathetic. That's the good life because the law doesn't condemn you anymore. And that's not what Peter says. He says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Just like the law says. Let him turn away from evil and what? Do good. Obey the law. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, those who live according to his laws. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12. Isn't that good? I want to take some time now. I want to ask the question, why is it why is it that so many Christians then, I mean, you look at this and, and we could just go on. I could, I, this message could be four times longer and we could go on for hours and hours. I could just show you passage after passage after passage of how the law is wonderful and good and it's a blessing for us. But the question I want to ask now is, why are so many Christians clinging to this idea that the law is canceled? I think there's many reasons. I thought of three uh, in the lead up to this message. I'm only going to get through two briefly here in, in the rest of this message, but... I think the first reason why is that people don't want to be on the hook for holiness. We live in a culture today, people don't want to be responsible for their behavior. And I do want to say this, I know that one of the reasons too is, I know that some people are latching onto this idea that the law has been canceled, because, and, and in this area it's true, especially a little bit of the older crowd. Some of you were maybe raised in a church that was very legalistic and you were hurt in a legalistic church. And it was a condemning, there was no life there, there was no Holy Spirit, there was no love of God there, and you were hurt in a legalistic church, and people will sometimes come out of that, and they'll swing over from one abuse to the other one, and they think that they find life in a false doctrine over here, that there is no more law, and they feel like they're finding life there. They're finding life in their relationship with Jesus, not in the false doctrine. And, but my heart goes out to these people, the people that are coming out of abuse, you know, I get that. I wish that they didn't have to swing over to here, that they could swing into the middle and find life with Jesus and in good doctrine and truth and spirit. But I get that. The truth of the matter is that our culture isn't there anymore. Our culture is in a different place. We don't live in a legalistic culture. We live in a culture that says, I don't want to be responsible. And people are latching onto this doctrine by the hundreds and by the thousands today. It is popular. It is making money because they don't want to be on the hook for holiness. They don't realize that it's what you believe and it's your faith in Jesus that gets you saved. But when you stand on judgment day, you're not going to stand before God and be accountable for what you thought. You're going to be accountable for what you did in your body, 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's your actions. You get saved by faith, but it's your actions you're accountable on judgment day. So people don't want that. They want the law out. Second reason why Christians are clinging to this idea that the law has been canceled is because they are mistaking the incompleteness of the law apart from faith as meaning that faith has canceled the law. And this is a real big one. This is a real big one. People, are, people think that, okay, because I already said, you can't, you can't be saved by, the, by just obeying the law. You need to have faith in Jesus. There's no question. But what people are doing is they're saying, see, the Israelites couldn't be saved by the law, and now we have faith so therefore, faith has canceled the law. That is not at all the story or the teaching of the Bible. Faith and the law aren't opposed to each other. In fact, if you read, and again, I don't have time to go into this right now, so you, again, look at my paper online, it's free. You look at Romans chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, Paul has a long discussion, and the whole point of it is this. He says, why did the Israelites fail to find salvation? 
And reason is not because of the law. It's because they pursued the law by works instead of by faith. In other words, they were always supposed to be pursuing the law by faith all along, even in the Old Testament. Faith is not opposed to the law. They're not against each other. And one of the things that's happening is when we read Romans chapter 5 through 8, and remember, not a single author in the New Testament outside of Paul makes any negative comments about the law. It's just Paul who seems to say both. And the thing we forget is that in, from Romans 5 to 8, and you look again in Galatians, one of the main things Paul is doing is he had a struggle. He had a struggle with very legalistic Jews who thought that the law was everything. They thought that they didn't think, they, they said, we don't need faith in Jesus Christ. We just need the law. The law is everything, which of course is obviously wrong. We know that. And so Paul, but when we read Romans 5 to 8 and when we read Galatians, we're listening in to only one side of a conversation. 2,000 years later, we're only hearing one side of the conversation. And all we're hearing is Paul shouting at these legalistic Jews. We're hearing him say, the law is not enough. You must have faith. The law is not enough. You must have faith. And we listen into this side of the conversation, Paul's side of the conversation, 2,000 years later, and we hear him saying that faith is all you need. That faith eliminates the need for the law. Yes, you can't work up salvation. It comes through faith alone. But then the life of faith, you are saved to live a life of goodness and righteousness in the law. And that's what Paul himself said. Look at this, Romans 3.31. He's actually quite clear about it if you refuse to just take out the little snippets that say what you want it to say. In Romans 3.31, Paul says this, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? So he's hammering away these legalistic Jews. He's saying, uh, you, you, you can't just have the law, you've got to have faith. And he says on the other hand, And to the rest of you who might think I'm saying that faith is canceled out the law, he says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We love the law, we respect the law, it is still authoritative, and we obey the law. Paul says it clearly in his own words, we uphold the law. By no means. Still obey it. You know, as I was praying uh, this week, and, and I got this, this analogy, this illustration I want to use now, and I think hopefully it'll help you a little bit to understand how the law and, and faith and the Holy Spirit, how they go together, and how you don't have, it's not either or, it's not faith or the law, it's faith and the law together. And so uh, let, me, let me just share with you. It's, um, imagine you have a very uh, wealthy uncle, let's say, and, uh, and he dies and he, he leaves you a very expensive car, okay? I don't know much about cars. So you guys who know about cars, you just fill in the blanks of the car you would like, okay? So this is a luxury car, okay? This is not a, you know, a Honda Civic or something like that. This is a... <laughs> This is a real good car, something like that, okay? Not a Dodge Caravan like what I'm driving, but it's, this is a thing of beauty, okay? So it's an expensive car, okay? I mean, it is perfectly engineered. I mean, the doors, the way they fit together, and the interior, and, and the, the console. I'm running out of things. Headlights. <laughs> it's about my list of knowledge about a car, okay? And it's, everything is just, oh, this car is, it's the gold standard of cars, I mean, this is the car that makes, I mean, every other car is just compared to this one. This is how they should be put together. It's, it's perfect. There's just one problem. It doesn't have an engine, okay? Now, that is a problem, right? Okay? First of all, is this car going to take you anywhere? No. I mean, it doesn't matter how beautiful that body is. 
uh, it, it's not going to go anywhere if it doesn't have a power source, yes? Okay, now, does the fact that it doesn't have an engine, does that make this car evil or bad? No. It just can't go anywhere, but it's a wonderful car, okay? So you've got this perfect car, but it can't go anywhere. It has no power source, okay? Now imagine that you have a friend who's a mechanic, and because he's a mechanic, again, he has connections to who knows what. Okay, it's just an illustration anyway. But anyway, <laughs> and he says, okay, so you've got this car, and a month later he phones you, ah, I've come into possession of the perfect engine. I mean, this thing is just well-engineered. It is powerful. It is just everything you want in an engine, and I'm going to bring it over. And so, yeah, sweet. So you've got this car, and now you've got the engine coming over. And so the next day, your friend, he shows up at your door, and he's got the, the engine. I can see it in my mind right now in one of those little, uh, you know, wheelie-doolies with it's hanging off a chain. And he <laughs> pushes up to the door, and ding-dong, you open the door. And uh, I got this engine. You're like, oh, sweet. I'm going to go get my tools, and, uh, and then we can get to work. And he says, your tools? Well, yeah, I'm going to get my tools so we can put the engine in the car. He says, put the engine in the car? That car can't take you anywhere. That car's been sitting there for a month and it's not doing anything. Let's just take this engine for a ride. And you'd be like, what? Did you take your medication today? What time is it? What are you even doing? I mean, that's, that's just ridiculous, right? I mean, you can't just take an engine for a ride, okay? Now, the fact that this car, can this car drive without an engine? No. But the fact that that car can't go anywhere with an engine doesn't mean that when you have the engine, you don't need the car, does it? See, that engine, you can't just take an engine for a ride. That engine needs to be put into the structure of something. It needs to be connected to a body that can carry people and to some wheels, and then it'll go somewhere. But if you just turn an engine on and it's not connected to a car, all it's going to do is make lots of noise. And do you know what? That's what a lot of Christians are doing today with the Holy Spirit. Oh, we don't need the law. They get the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is all about wacky manifestations, and they're making all kinds of noise. They're quacking like dogs or ducks and barking like dogs and <laughs> crazy things. Because it's not the power isn't connected into anything. And they're using faith to get rich. Faith is to get rich. Faith is to get rich. That's not what faith is for. You get forgiven of your sins by faith, and you get filled by the Holy Spirit, and you put that power into the structure of a godly life as defined by the law, and now this thing takes off, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to be a person of truth and love and integrity and godliness and all of those things. But the fact that you get an engine in the new covenant, that thank goodness, Paul said, I mean, the new covenant is better than the old. You, know, you want to know why? Not because the new cancels it out, but because the new brings them together. In the Old Covenant, you just had the shell. In the New Covenant, you get the engine into the shell, and now you can live a godly, saved life. And that's why the New Covenant is better than the Old. Because it brings the engine inside, but lots of Christians today are saying, no, 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 no. We don't need the body anymore. We just need this. We just need the Spirit. We just need faith. No. So three things. Three things are needed for salvation and godliness. Faith the Holy Spirit, and the law. Let me just read you a couple passages from the New Testament. Authors outside of Paul. Matthew 5, 17 to 19. I'd be amiss to uh, speak in the law. I've used this passage before, but I'd be amiss to speak in the law and not talk about what Jesus himself said about it. He said this. This is Jesus' words. Do not think. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Can it be any clearer than this? I have not Come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass,
pass away. Now, can I just ask you a question? This is not a trick question. Have heaven or earth passed away yet? Some of you were a little confused, okay? Like I said, you need to take a little medication later when you go home and and just get that sorted out. But we're still here, okay? Heaven and earth haven't passed away yet. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, and I take this next verse very, very seriously. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called what? Least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I'm, I know that everybody here wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven. I know that when Jesus comes back, there isn't a person here today that doesn't want Jesus to look you in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, he tells you the way. He says, this is how you become great in my kingdom. You do my laws, you obey, you live in righteousness, and you encourage another, and teach others to do the same. James 1.25, let's look at what James says. I love James. James says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law, he can't even just call it the law, he has to call it the perfect law. It's the one who studies it. Now look at this, the one who looks into the perfect law, he's still not done, the law of liberty. I mean, how many of you, we got preachers today saying the law is death, the law is condemnation, the law is harsh, it's all these horrible things, and then you've got James, who actually wrote pieces of the Bible, and he said the law is liberty. Telling the truth is liberty. Being sexually pure is liberty. Loving your neighbor as yourself is liberty. That not that liberty? Yeah. It's the law of liberty. And perseveres. So he keeps doing it. Sometimes you don't understand what's in there. Sometimes, I mean, it, we're, we're, we're living, you know, 3,500 years later after Moses wrote this. And so obviously some of these things are sometimes hard to understand. But the one who perseveres, you look into that perfect law, that law of liberty, and you persevere. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the prosperity gospel. Not faith to get rich, but faith to prosper on the inside. You'll be blessed in your doing. You'll be blessed with power from Jesus to live righteously. You'll be blessed. You'll have a feeling of communion with the Holy Spirit as you live in obedience to his commands. You'll prosper on the inside. The Lord will work in your life. You, he will give you wisdom and revelation how to raise your kids, but you will live in obedience to His revealed law. We could go on and on with many other passages from the New Testament. But I want to finish with one last point here, and that is this, that the objection that I know some of you are thinking is, it's just not relevant. The Old Testament law has, and it's too old. It's just, it doesn't have anything to do with my life today. And I want to show you that that's wrong. And yes, I get that there are elements in there. Again, it's, it's 3,500 years old, so obviously there's going to be some things in there that don't jive exactly with how we would say them today. And hopefully as this series goes on, you'll get more and more understanding. You'll, you'll, you'll be more and more comfortable. Part of it, you just have to persevere through. But I want to show you, though, that even though it's 3,500 years old, the, the laws in the Old Testament law are still for today. They're wonderful. They're amazing. And the best way I know to do that is just to show you two examples. Okay? Two examples. Let me show them to you. Let's go to Leviticus 19.30, verse 32. I mean, Leviticus is the law of the law. This is the law, okay? It doesn't get more law than Leviticus 19.32. Look at, look at this law. It says, Stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. Fear your God, I am the Lord. My question to you today is, do you give up your seat when an elderly person comes in the room and there's no seats left? 
Do you give up your, your spot in line? An elderly person comes in and, and they're trying to get through the line. Do you teach your kids to say Mr. and Mrs. when they're talking to older people and not just use their first names? You say, what? I didn't know, I didn't know that was part of the law. That's exactly my point. Exactly my point. We, people are telling us, you don't need to read the law. It's canceled. There's all this doubt. Does it apply? All this sort of stuff. So we don't read it. And if you don't read it, how can you know what pleases God? Do you think this pleases God or not? He put it in his law. Do you think, well, that was the Old Testament. So before Jesus died on the cross, he cared about respecting elderly people. But then Jesus died on the cross and he changed his mind. Like, it actually just makes me sick even to think about it. Stand up in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the age. This is what it means to fear God. I mean, the thing, the beauty is, when you read this, now imagine you're having your devotions and instead of avoiding the law and reading what someone else says about the Bible, you're actually reading it for yourself and you come across this verse and now you meditate on it. Think about this. Remember David said it's like honey to the soul. This law is giving you insight into God's heart. If you didn't read this, you would miss out. And you might spend your whole time praying, God, give me this. God, give me that. And it's fine to pray for your needs. But here's the thing that Matthew 6 says, God already knows your needs and he will give you everything you need if, if what? You seek first his kingdom and what? His righteousness. If we would spend more time obeying God's laws, we could spend a little less time praying. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. We've got to pray. Love prayer. But if we would obey his laws, we would please him and he would be showering us with blessings. This is, what, this is what it means to fear God. So you come across this in your devotions. Think of how this changes your life. And you start to meditate. I got it right here, circled here. I meditated on this a couple months ago too. How do, we, how do we honor elderly people? And as you begin to meditate on that, Holy Spirit is working in your life. This is what matters to God. This is what brings great reward. This is how you become a person who God is just, oh, faithful servant, I love you. It's all from this. Many of us are totally missing out on this because we don't look at that part. We don't want to read it. But the laws give us insight into God's heart. These are the secrets that really matter to God. I'll show you another example. Deuteronomy 22, 1-4. If you see your brother's ox or sheep stray, how many of you, your brother has an ox or a sheep? <laughs> it's really not that hard to bring it into modern times, though, is it? You'll see. If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it. I call this, this passage the do not ignore it laws, okay? These are the do not ignore it laws. Do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. So don't say it's not my problem. And this, by the way, brother, Jesus preaches on this when he talks about the Good Samaritan, doesn't he? And they say, who's my neighbor? Who's my brother? And he basically says, anyone who's breathing and alive who you see, Okay? Do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to them. So you run into someone, they're lost, or they've lost someone. It could be a total stranger. You're at work. You're, you know, you're somewhere. You're out on a day. Whatever it is, don't ignore it. If the brother does not live near you, or if you do not know who he is, take it home with you and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Do not ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or his ox fall on the road, do not ignore it. Help him get to its feet. So it's not just if he loses something, it's if someone needs any kind of assistance. That's part of God's law. Now imagine again that you have a discipline in your life to read God's word and meditate and obey it. I mean, this is what it means. Having devotions is not about having super spiritual experiences. Sometimes they happen. That's great. You, say, you thank God for them. Having devotions is about reminding yourself of these things constantly. This is God's character. 
And if you never think about these things, you won't really ever end up doing them. But when you're constantly meditating on this stuff, you come across them as you meditate, and the Lord convicts you through his law. He convicts you where you're not doing them. You confess, oh, Jesus, forgive me for that. And you improve in it. Now you take steps. That's what God wants from you. And he's pleased with you. And you have an intimate relationship with you. You don't get an intimate relationship with Jesus by spending 15 hours a day in a prayer room. Now that can be fine for some people, okay? But it's not spiritual disciplines that make you close with God. It's obedience. Amen? So you do this. And you meditate on his word and you do it. And the Lord says, you are a faithful servant. You are a faithful servant. I'm going to read one last passage here and then we'll pray. Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 7, and I just want to finish with this. Parents, this is for you and your kids. One of our primary jobs, we have to give our kids love, we have to give our kids security, but one of our primary jobs is to teach our kids God's laws. So Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, parents, this is for you. Moses says to the people of Israel, after he's given them the vast body of commands and rules and statutes, he says this, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our, your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. It's our job as parents not just to feed our kids and love them, but to raise them godly, to pass on a godly heritage by keeping. And here's, here's, how, you pass, how, here's how you teach your kids to fear the Lord. This is what it says. It's very, very practical. How do you teach your kids to fear the Lord? By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. There's a blessing that goes with it. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. A lot of you thought that was a New Testament verse. That was Jesus preaching the Old Testament. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now look at this. Parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children. It's no accident. You don't just teach God's laws when you feel like it or when they feel like it. It'll never happen. You teach them diligently, regularly. You teach the laws. You meditate on them. You do them. This is life. It's not boring. It's not harsh. It's not condemning. It's life. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. I pray that this would be a church of righteousness, Jesus, that we would be a church that loves to obey. I pray, God, that you would tear down the lies that we cannot take steps of obedience, that you have to do it all for us. Yes, Lord, you have to fill us with power, but we have to say yes to you. We actually have to gird our, up our will and say yes and take steps of obedience and pursue you, Jesus. Pray that we become a church of obedience and godliness and righteousness. In your name we pray, amen.